0: Hey, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're new, welcome to Remnant. My hope is that you will find this to be a place where you are challenged by the Word of God to examine yourself and to allow God to change you. And that's really what we're about here at Remnant. And uh, I have to admit, this week's a little hard to preach because my heart's heavy. Because normally, Giles is sitting right over there, and he's gone to be with the Lord this week. So, um... Yeah, it's just hard. Um, I know we'll see him again. That's what this series is all about. But uh, what an incredible man of God. So pray for Muriel. Pray for their family. Um, uh, we, we grieve, but we grieve as those with hope, right? So that's where we are. Now, last week, we talked about this very real reality of the rapture. And, and that it's not some fictitious idea. And it's not some hopeful kind of fantasy, it's actually based in scripture and we see it repeated throughout scripture and and it's a key core concept of God's plan. So the obvious question this week is how long do we have to wait? When will the rapture happen? Specifically, are we going through the tribulation? Are we going through part of it? Are we going through none of it? Some of it, all of it, what's gonna happen? That's the question. People have been debating the timing of the rapture almost since the moment Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. Look at how Luke describes their response. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands he blessed them and while he blessed them he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God. They didn't know when they were just full of joy that they had received a promise that Jesus would come back not just joy the scriptures say great joy You see, they understood. He's gone, but he's coming back. I'm not sure we understand that. He's gone, but he's coming back. We too should be filled with great joy. They were curious. The, The disciples asked Jesus, when will be the day and what will be the signs? And that's when Jesus started talking about the great tribulation. And when Jesus revealed to John the revelation, The question of his return began to center around the timing of his return and the seven-year tribulation that's to come. So today we're gonna join that discussion, exploring the question, when will the church go through any or all of the seven-year tribulation? This is not just some ivory tower debate. There's a great deal at stake. In fact, I think a large part of whether you believe this, he's gonna return pre-tribulation mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, very much affects the way you live this afternoon, the decisions you make, the way you think about it, and we'll talk about that today. Now, if the rapture occurs in our lifetime, and I believe it very well could, will we be here to see the Antichrist? Will we be forced to decide whether to take his mark? Will you witness the carnage of God's wrath poured out on the whole world? Or will you be in heaven during that time, experiencing glorious fellowship and intimacy with Jesus and his sheep? Will you and I be here for none, half, or all of the tribulation? It's an important and sobering question. There are three main views of the rapture. Pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. And there's another one called pre-wrath that we'll talk about a little bit. So when you look at these these, uh, views of the rapture, they all agree at some level that believers are exempt from the wrath of God. That as believers, we have been saved from the wrath of God. Now if you look at this diagram, it's basically showing you the rapture and where it could occur in really three different areas. And the question is, Basically, when you look at that slide, are we going to see the tribulation or not? Are we going to get half of it or none of it? But what's clear is we are not destined for the wrath of God. That's what we've been saved from. The question is not do we have to go through and receive the wrath of God. The question is do we have to watch it and witness it as others do? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath... But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you're doing. Pre-tribulators or pre-tribbers, as I am, believe that God's wrath begins at the beginning of the tribulation and that God will keep believers from it by removing them before it ever starts. Mid-tribbers say, no, no, we've got to go through the first three and a half years. We've got to get to the point where the Antichrist declares himself as God, and then we'll be raptured. Post-tribbers confine the wrath of God to the end of tribulation. We're going through all of it. We'll see every bit of it. And then and only then we'll be raptured. So I want to spend the rest of these two weeks explaining why I believe the pre-tribulation rapture option is the best. Not based on my opinion, not based on my desire, not based on what I wish, but clearly based on scriptures. And you'll be able to go back, look at the exact same scriptures and decide for yourself. But this is important. You know, sometimes in in theology, we kind of debate things that really in the grand scheme of things aren't that important. This is critical because what you believe about this is going to affect the way you think about the urgency of how you live your life. I'm gonna outline six today, and then the last one I'm gonna cover um, in our third sermon on the rapture next week. So with that ahead of us, let us start and look at some of the reasons why I believe pre-trib rapture is the best and honestly the only view in scripture that makes sense. Every view of the rapture has strengths and weaknesses. Whatever one holds, you gotta acknowledge the drawbacks. So I wanna cover some of the reasons I believe Jesus will return for his church before the tribulation. First one, the disappearance of the church in the book of Revelation. In two weeks, we begin study of Revelation. We're going line by line. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It occurs 20 times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1 through 3, the first three chapters, mentions the church 19 times. In fact, Jesus specifically addresses the churches in Revelation 1 through 3. But starting in chapter 4, the word for church never shows up again until chapter 19. Throughout the story of Revelation, there's no mention of the church in the first 15 chapters. Throughout all the bowls, throughout all the trumpets, throughout all the seals, no mention of the church on earth. More interesting in these chapters is that chapters 4 through 18, which don't mention the church, are the most detailed description of the tribulation. The apostle John is lifted up to heaven. He's transcended into the future where he sees visions of the end of days. For 15 chapters, John watches and describes all that's going on earth during that time. It's odd, right? John was the disciple of love. The thing he cared about the most were the people of the church, the people who'd been saved. The one thing John showed was his incredible love for the followers of Jesus, and he doesn't mention them. No mention of how they're doing during the tribulation. No mention of what they're experiencing during the tribulation. So you'd expect that the role of the church during that time would be critical to understanding if we, in fact, were there. You would expect Jesus would talk about how his bride, the church, is protected from tribulation, but what their actions are doing during the tribulation to comfort, to reach, to minister, and to witness to people. And yet, all we get is silence. Do you know when the church is mentioned again? Chapter 19. Jesus' bride is always the church. Note that when the church is finally mentioned again, she's described as a bride returning to earth with her bridegroom. She, the church, cannot return to earth with Jesus unless she left earth to go be with him. And it looks like she's been there quite a while because she's had time to prepare herself. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Past tense and that John next sees the rider on the white horse, Jesus, preparing to return to earth. The marriage of the lamb happens in heaven during the tribulation. It's one of the reasons we have to be there during the tribulation, because all that we read about the marriage of the lamb is occurring in heaven. We're gonna talk about that next week. How can Jesus marry a bride that's not there? The bride has to leave before the tribulation. The first event the raptured church will participate in is a judgment by God, the judgment of the just. Not based on our, not determining our eternal destiny, but determining our rewards based on our works. The second event the church will experience is the marriage supper of the lamb. The feast celebrates the spiritual spiritual marriage of Christ's bride, the church, to her savior. The third event that follows the marriage supper of the lamb is the church's preparation to come back with the king of kings as his army during the battle of Armageddon. This event is called the second coming of Christ. We'll get through this in detail. So how has she prepared herself? How has the bride prepared herself? She's been clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints we just read. Notice these clothes were granted to her. The word means awarded, suggesting that she's already faced the judgment of the just. Her deeds were determined as righteous, and she is now giving the rewards of that. She's now, because she's been declared righteous, able to marry the Holy Groom. She's worthy because she's wearing the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, this implies that our church has not only been with Jesus in heaven, but has been there long enough to receive crowns, to receive awards, and to receive the covering of white linen, our righteousness. This will all make sense later, I promise. So beginning in Revelation chapter four, we're gonna see that the seals are broken, the trumpets and bowls are poured out as God's wrath on an unbelieving earth. There's no mention of the followers of Jesus and what happens to them. And when the tribulation is over, Jesus returns with his bride, which is the believers of the church. I believe the church is not mentioned during tribulation because we're raptured prior to it, that's one. Now, there is mention of saints in Revelation four through 18. And it's clear that those saints are believers who accepted Christ during the tribulation and they're called church age or, or uh, trib saints. So if the church is not present on earth during the tribulation, is there any mention of them in heaven during that time? You might ask, okay, if we don't see them down on earth, is there anything in scripture that shows them up in heaven? I'm glad you asked that question. I am. In Revelation, as the judgments of God are being poured out, there is repetitive mention of 24 elders who are enthroned in heaven. I believe the 24 elders in heaven mentioned 12 times during Revelation 4-19 through represent the church of God in heaven during the tribulation. These 24 elders are pictured by John, they are in heaven, they are rewarded, they are clothed, they are enthroned, they're clothed in white, and they've received the crowns and are worshiping the lamb. Revelation 4.4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on thrones were 24 elders clothed in garments with crowns on their heads. Okay, so while Revelation, while the seal's being broken, while things are starting to be poured out, there's this repetitive mention of 24 elders at the throne in heaven. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their, throu- their, throne, or their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and you will be and you will, uh, and by your will they existed and they were created. So who are these 24 elders? And where do they come from? There are four main views. Some people say, well, they're just angels. Some people say, well, the elders just represent Israel somehow. Others say they're leaders of the rapture church. And others say maybe they represent all believers of all time. Maybe they're heavenly created bodies. Let me share with you why I believe they represent the church that has already been raptured. They're called elders. In scripture, elders always represents the leaders of God's people. In the New Testament, the elders are the representatives of the church. In Revelation, we find a description of these elders. They are enthroned, they're crowned, and they're dressed in white. In addition to the title elder, there are several other reasons why I believe they are our representatives with us in heaven. Second thing is the number. In Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament numbered in the thousands. Not everybody could worship at the temple at the same time, so the priesthood was divided into 24 groups that served in the temple on rotating schedules. They were on the earth before the throne of God in the temple, representing the people and worshiping God. But there's something also unique about these men. None of the 24 on earth were ever enthroned in the temple. In fact, they never sat down. Yet these 24, the third reason is their position. They are seated in thrones. Christ promised that his church would be enthroned in heaven. Revelation three nineteen. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The Next thing is the crowns they're carrying. Crowns are promised to New Testament believers. They're promised to the church. They receive them at the judgment seat, which occurs for us at the rapture. Scripture mentions five crowns for New Testament believers. The imperishable crown, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of life, and the crown of rejoicing. The Bible is specific that the rapture will be for those who are in Christ. Those who believe in Jesus during the church age, we are his bride. Those who've died, who've fallen asleep, we talked about last week, they will rise first, we'll meet them in the clouds, we'll all have our glorified bodies, and God will take us to the house that he's been preparing for us. From a pre-trib perspective, Old Testament saints won't be rewarded until the end of tribulation. So these can't be Old Testament saints and they don't represent Israel. Once we go through God's judgment seat and receive our crowns, we'll have our glorified bodies. We'll be clothed in white to represent our righteousness. We'll be able to receive crowns for the deeds we've done on earth. Here we have 24 elders, clothed in white at the throne, and seated on the throne and they've received their crowns, which they are casting down. In other words, whatever I've earned on earth, I don't deserve it, Jesus, it's all yours. They're not angels, they're not Old Testament saints. They don't represent the Jewish nation of Israel. Final thing is their clothing. The white clothing of the elders is identical to the clothing of church-age believers. They've received the clothing of righteousness because they've been given crowns at the judgment seat in addition their distinction these elders are distinctly different from angels in revelation look at revelation 5:11 then i looked and i heard around the throne are the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands there are thousands of voices there's 24 elders Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So to sum up, the first reason I believe the church is raptured prior to the tribulation is the place of the church in Revelation. Not mentioned, Revelation 4 through 18, as being on earth. But they are, I believe, mentioned during that time of being in heaven. Judge, glorified, crowned, and enthroned. With elders, and when the church is mentioned again in Revelation 19, we are prepared as a bride to return to earth with Jesus' second coming. Second thing we want to look at, and why I think the pre trib rapture is the one that makes sense, is the difference between the rapture and Jesus' return. We talked about this last week. The New Testament describes two perspectives of his return. One is a rapture. The other is his physical return to earth. He will come for his church to escort her to his father's house. John 14, 3. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I'll come again. And I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord." Therefore encourage one another with these words. He will come with his saints when he descends from heaven to judge the enemies and the kingdom on earth. When Jesus comes the second time, he comes with his saints. When he's raptured, when he's doing the rapture, he's coming for his saints. Zechariah 14:3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lie before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that half the Mount will move north, the other half southward. He physically is on earth. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I among many believe there are two separate events separated in time. Both describes the Lord's coming, but they come in two stages. First stage is the rapture when Jesus comes for his church. It could happen at any time. It's imminent, it's signless. It could be today, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There are promises. Jesus is going to come get us. He's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. We are to wait for Jesus. We're to wait for him to deliver us. It's the essence of the rapture. Now this is such a critical point to understand before we go into Revelation. So I want to spend a few moments making sure we know the difference between the rapture and the return. Okay, remember rapture, we meet him in the clouds. Return, he comes back to earth. Rapture, Jesus comes in the air. Return, Jesus comes physically to earth. The rapture, Christ comes for his saints. The return, Christ comes with his saints. Rapture, believers depart the earth. Return, believers return to earth and unbelievers are taken away. Rapture, Christ claims his bride. Return, Christ comes back with his bride. Rapture, Christ gathers his own. Return, angels gather the elect. Rapture, Christ comes to save and reward. Return, Christ comes to judge and to punish. Rapture's not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. It's a new revelation, a mystery, Paul says. Return is predicted numerous times throughout the entire book of the Old Testament. Rapture is a time of blessing and comfort. Return is a time of destruction and judgment. Rapture involves church-age believers only. Return involves Israel and Gentile nations and Old Testament saints. Rapture will occur in the blink of an eye, and only his own will see him. At the return, it will be visible to the entire world at once. No one will miss his return. Rapture, Christ comes as a bright morning star. Return, Christ comes as the Son of Righteousness. Throughout this series, we've talked about the signs of end times, the signs of the second coming of Christ. Scriptures tell us that the preceding events to the second coming are in great detail. Jesus will return after three and a half years after the abomination of desolation in the temple. It's clear. The number of days. They will know. Jesus' return is not going to be a surprise to those that are on earth. If they know the day of the desolation of the temple, the day when the Antichrist declares himself as God and goes into the Holy of Holies and makes an image of himself and forces people to worship, on that day you can start counting and you will know the day Jesus returns with his army. Okay, Almost every event in the timeline is is predicted by specific signs. These are the trumpets. These are the seals, trumpets, bowls. They all occur one after another in order. But the rapture is signless. There's no sign for the rapture. There's nothing that has to happen. There's no way you can say what day it's going to be. It's not known to us. It's only known to the Father. It could happen at any moment. Before I finish, it could happen. There's nothing that has to happen prior to the rapture. There are things that have to happen prior to the return of Christ with his bride. Another reason the rapture and the second coming are two different events is that an event can't be signless and have signs. Second coming of Christ, preceded by a lot of signs, rapture, none at all. So clearly, the rapture and the return are two different events. Yet only the pre-trib rapture, and this is the most important thing I'm going to teach today, only the pre-trib rapture maintains the imminent return of Jesus at any moment for his saints, the protection of his saints from the wrath and the final glorious return with his saints. So we have the placement of the church in Revelation, we have the rapture and the return. The third thing I want to talk about is exemption from divine wrath we have to ask ourselves, what's the reason for the tribulation? The reason God takes mankind through the tribulation is twofold. One, to show Israel that Jesus is the true Messiah and God and give them a chance to repent. And two, to pour out his wrath on sin and destroy Satan. That's why there's a tribulation. The tribulation is all about the Jewish people. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am gonna defeat Satan. Yes, I am the one you've been waiting for. I'm coming back for you. The Gentile period is over. The church age is over. This is about rescuing the Jewish people. The focus of the church age is over. We're gonna see the Bible tells us 144,000 Jewish witnesses who proclaim truth being led by two primary witnesses who have supernatural power, and their target is the Jewish nation, not the Gentiles. Jeremiah 36, why has every face turned pale? Alas, this day is so great there's none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, Israel, yet he shall be saved out of it. Also, Revelation 12 describes this very picturesque woman who gives birth and has to flee the tribulation. The context shows that the woman is Israel. And again, the battle of Armageddon is the world against Israel. Two thirds of Jewish people will be killed from these battles. The texts and others show that tribulation is meant for the redemption of Jewish people. We will get into this a lot as we get into Revelation. Why are the Jews the object of persecution during the tribulation? Well, for one, Satan hates the Jewish people. They protected the scriptures, they gave the world Jesus. And he wants to thwart the promise of God towards the Jews. Second, the Jews have to be so desperately brought low that they finally call out to their Messiah and finally say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The tribulation is used for Israel's redemption the church does not fit into this scenario. We, we really don't have a role in this. They would need to, we would need to be removed or caught up before the tribulation begins. Now a lot of people say, well you're just a pre-trib person because you just don't want to have to go through the tribulation. Okay. They argue that it's arrogance to think that of all the generations of believers, those who've ever lived, that we're somehow so special, we don't have to go through it. But we can't hold any opinion unless scripture supports it, right? I mean, we're not here to look at our opinions. We're here to look at the word of God and change our opinions. First of all, no one who lives on this sinful planet escapes tribulation and trials. Jesus promised in the world you will have tribulation. We'll all face tribulations because we live in a false, cursed world. But there's a difference between tribulation and the tribulation. We all face general tribulations every day, but the tribulation is very specific. Everything we experience, many of our tribulations today are due to Satan's wrath and persecution, but the tribulation to come is all about God's wrath and judgment. It's really critical to understand. Our tribulations, we live in a fallen world, Satan is doing things. The tribulation, God is bringing his wrath upon that fallen world. The tribulations, God's wrath poured out on the unbelieving world, and there's no reason I can think of that God would wanna pour out that wrath or have his bride here during that wrath. It's a special time set aside by the Lord. True believers in Christ during the church age represented by the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is gonna come upon the whole world to test those who live on earth. Jesus telling John, I'm going to protect you from the trials that are going to come upon the whole earth. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1:10 says, and to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5:9. for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such thing, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. It doesn't make sense for God's people to endure God's wrath. Part of salvation means we've been saved from it. This has been God's pattern, not to judge the righteous, but to judge the wicked. Lot and his family were rescued from Sodom before God brought his his wrath upon the cities. Enoch's rapture to heaven before the flood illustrates the biblical principle as well. God saves his people from his wrath upon sin. Jesus took our place. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. There's no reason for us to go through his wrath. But why? What is it about the tribulation that requires our absence? The book of Revelation clearly refers to God's wrath at least seven times. Commences with the first seal and continues all the way until the second coming what purpose could there be of having god's people suffer through the worst time in human history i can't imagine a man leaving his bride in the midst of death destruction disease and terror even if you knew she was protected and if you were going to do it there would be a very clear reason why you would do that so you would think you'd at least mention it during revelation 4 through 19. particularly since the tribulation is an outpouring of god's wrath upon sin And Jesus died to keep us from the punishment of sin. Now, both pre-trib and mid-trib supporters agree that the bride of Christ will be protected from the great tribulation. Post-tribbers believe that we have to go through the entire tribulation. So one of the key questions is when does God's wrath start? I'm going to give you a sort of a quick overview of where we're headed uh, in the book of Revelation, let me just explain a few things to you. Okay, so we have the New Testament church uh, in Revelation one through three. Uh, they uh, Jesus actually writes to the churches. At some point, there's going to be a rapture that's pre-trib, so before the three and a half years. Okay, and we start to read in Revelation of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And we know that halfway through those seven years, the abomination of desolation is going to occur. And when that occurs, we'll know when the return of Jesus is going to occur with his church. Revelation 20, 21 tells us about the thousand-year reign. Revelation 22 tells us about eternity. That's where we're headed. Okay? It is from 4 to 19 that we see the absence of the mention of believers on earth during the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Okay, now, let's go to the next slide, if you would. Now, there are seven seals. Um, And when we look at the seals, we'll go through these in detail, but not, I mean, trust me, it'll be interesting. Um, But you see the pre-trib believers think it occurs before anything happens. Next slide, please. Then there's the seven trumpets. The mid-tribulation people believe that it occurs between the sixth and seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet includes the next slide, which are all the bowls, and the post-tribulation people believe it occurs at the end. There's a pre-wrath idea that it occurs between or before the bowls are poured out, but we're not going to go into that too much. I don't think it has much weight. Um, Okay, so... all agree that God will keep his church from the wrath. All the, no matter when you think the rapture occurs, everybody except the post-tribbers believe he'll keep us from the wrath. So let me share with you why I believe this is best. Revelation 3.10, because you've kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of testing. The hour which is to come upon the whole world. Why is it coming? To test those who dwell on the earth. Why is there a tribulation? to test those who dwell on the earth. What's the test? God's saying, do you believe me yet? Just like with the Egyptians, just like with the plagues. Something happens, God looks at the world and says, do you believe me yet? Some will say yes, some will say no. He allows the next thing to happen. Do you believe yet? No. The purpose of the rapture is twofold, to punish sin and destroy Satan, and to allow Jewish people to see their Messiah. For some people, it may take four seals before they go, okay, all right, I surrender. But by the end of Revelation, by chapter 19, those who are still standing stiff-arming God have been given every opportunity to acknowledge him as Lord and have chosen not to do it. Now, he says this is a testing for the entire world. That's the only place this occurs in tribulation. There's no reason to test believers. They've already been tested. They've already been found righteous. Jesus says in this verse, I will keep you from, not I will get you through. He promises to keep us from the trial, but to keep us from the time of the trial. We are protected, I believe, from the time the trials start and not only the trial themselves. Finally, Jesus says that he's coming quickly. From these four points, we see that the Lord will deliver his people from a time of testing by the sudden coming for them at the rapture. Fourth reason, I believe, in the pre-trib rapture is the removal of the restrainer. Paul talks about a man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Some at Thessalonica thought the day of the Lord had already come, that the second coming of Jesus was coming or had already come. They were concerned about it. Paul tells them this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be for us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul's clearly saying the day of the Lord has not yet come. The day of the Lord, the day of the return of Jesus, Paul tells them how they'll know. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. When does the great wrath, the great tribute, when does it happen? When he declares himself as God in the temple of God. The return of Christ will not come until that moment has occurred. The Antichrist will be revealed. Everybody will know who he is. They may think he's a Messiah, they may not know. He'll set himself up as God in the temple and according to scripture that has to occur at the midpoint of the seven year tribulation. And the return of Jesus will only come after those things have happened. It can't be today. Those things haven't happened. So what's keeping this lawlessness from being revealed? What's delaying it? Well, God tells us, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may reveal in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What's holding back the Antichrist? What is on earth that's keeping the Antichrist from being there? Well, the restrainer is God himself in the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth. We have an enormous part to play. Right now, the only reason Satan is not in charge of this earth completely is because we're here. And the Holy Spirit is not allowing it. God is using us as restrainers during these end times. That's one of the reasons it is so critical that every believer is in their position on guard right now. What's preventing the Antichrist from being on stage right now? You are. You and every other member of the body of Christ on earth. The presence of the Church of Jesus Christ is the restraining force that refuses to allow the man of lawlessness to be revealed. True, it's the Holy Spirit who's the real restrainer. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. The believer's body is the temple of God. Put all believers together with the Holy Spirit indwelling in each of us and we become a very formidable restraining force for the Antichrist. Only the spirit of God is strong enough to hold back and contain the forces of evil. Note in that verse, it is he who restrains it. He, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now the rapture is going to change everything. When the rapture occurs, the spirit indwelled church and that restraining influence is gone like that. It'll release the world into sin as never been seen before. We have never really seen what happens when our world is fully lacking moral influence. Christians who stand for civic righteousness and law and morals will no longer be presenting their influence or be an obstacle. The church's salt and light will be extracted from the earth. And for a time at least, only unsaved people will be here. And it'll create an enormous vacuum that allows the Antichrist the leverage he needs to begin to move throughout the world. Satan will at that point bring his center stage man onto the control of the world. Evil will erupt and expand unchecked like's never been seen in the history of mankind. It'll be like removal of a huge dam of sin. The world will be inundated with evil of scope and severity we can't even think about. However, the Holy Spirit's return to heaven is not a complete withdrawal from the earth. It's kind of a reverse Pentecost, if you want to think about it. His activity will be like it was in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit won't be absent during the tribulation, but those who've been spiritually reborn, that full restraining force, won't be here as in number but the convicting, drawing, regenerating ministry of the Holy Spirit will be present during the tribulation for those who are being saved and those who are in the world to see the acts of God. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Satan can have the influence he needs to have during the tribulation if the church is still present. The gates of hell can't prevail against us because of the Holy Spirit. There'll be no doubt during the tribulation that the gates of hell are wide open. The next reason I'm going to talk about is imminency. imminency. Numerous passages in the New Testament speak of the unexpected, immediate, surprising return of Jesus. Now, we've already said that when he comes to earth, it's going to occur three and a half years after the abomin- abomination of desolation. We know that day. Let me just read some. 1 Corinthians 1 7, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Philippians 4 5, the Lord is near. Thessalonians 1:10, to wait for His Son from heaven. Titus two thirteen, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. James 5, 7. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of our Lord, for the coming of the Lord is near. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. 1 Peter 1:13. 1, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Jude one twenty one, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord to to eternal life. Revelation 3.11, I'm coming quickly. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. He who testifies these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Any moment. imminency means that the rapture could occur at any moment. Other prophetic events may take place before the rapture, but there's nothing prophetically that has to happen before the rapture. In other words, we're not waiting on something to happen. It is the next major event on the timeline. Without warning, the rapture could occur at any moment. We have to be ready for it. If signs were required to precede it, if we knew when it was gonna happen, we could kick back and relax about the urgency of our lives. Imminency means that the rapture is a signless event. It could occur any time at any place. It also means the rapture is certain to happen, but it may not be soon. Two elements, certainty and uncertainty. It's gonna happen, we don't know when. Because only the pre-trib event allows for imminency. All the other ideas, mid-trib, post-trib, they all require that we know what's gonna happen. If I told you you're a mid-tribber, so when he, when he puts himself in the temple and declares himself as God, you'll be looking at the sky ready to fly because you know that's when it's gonna happen. If it's post-trib, you wait till the tribulation is over and you actually see Jesus coming down to earth. Only pre-trib leaves the possibility of it occurring suddenly without warning. Those who believe in a pre-trib rapture can honestly say it might be today. It should fill us with hope and anticipation and motivation to be godly people. Jesus might come today, he could be here today. If it's mid-trib, he can't be here yet. The Antichrist hasn't been defined, Temple hasn't been rebuilt. The Jewish people haven't done their thing. I mean, it can't be today. There's no way. Okay, so eminency is the major reason why the pre-trib rapture makes the most sense. Any other sign, any other rapture loses urgency. The one thing Jesus made crystal clear was that he could come at any time and his followers need to be ready. Take away that truth and most scriptures don't make sense. So this gives me a strong urgency about my own walk with Christ, my motivation to witness for him, to not put down deep roots here knowing this isn't my home, to not worry about my earthly tent, to have peace about today and tomorrow and to keep my priorities straight. It also engages me in making sure I'm engaged and focused on God's mission, not mine. One of the things I struggle with the most is wasted potential among believers of Jesus. It drives me bonkers. For believers to be given gifts and talents and opportunities to impact the world for Christ, to be placed on the front line, particularly during the end times when Jesus could recur at any time, And then to choose to not engage in the mission with every ounce of energy you have hurts my heart because we lose potential. We, if you lose your sense of his imminent return, you begin chasing after little G gods. You begin letting the world pull you away from your post. You begin worrying and thinking about the things of the world or what you have to do. It drives me bonkers because we've given so much potential and we can waste it so easily. We take our time, our talent, and our treasures, and we waste them on things that don't have anything to do with the reason we're here. It's so frustrating because we need everybody at their battle stations because Satan is grooming the world for the arrival of the Antichrist, and we are the restrainers. And too many of us are chasing little G gods during a time when the battle's starting to roar. So for these and several other reasons, I support the view that the rapture could occur at any moment, and Jesus could take his bride home before the tribulation starts. Any other view put signs ahead of it and and makes believers complacent, passive, and lethargic. If I'm a mid-tribber, I can just wait for the Antichrist to declare himself in the temple of God when it's rebuilt in Jerusalem. If I'm post-trib, I can just wait for Jesus to show up. They don't align with the expectations of the early church that Paul repeatedly instructed them to expect his return at any time. I'm not saying pre-trib is the only option. It just is the one I think best aligns with scripture. For that reason, I embrace it because it changes the way I live. It gives me a sense of urgency. It gives me eager to go home, anticipating his return at any moment, fully present and engaged in the mission. Last reason I'm going to talk about today is blessed hope. After Paul describes the rapture of the Thessalonians, he says this, therefore encourage one another with these words. Titus 2.12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If Paul believed in anything other than a pre-tribulation rapture. What kind of encouragement is that to them? Would the truth of the rapture be that comforting if you knew you were going through the tribulation, if you knew that all the believers were going to go through the tribulation? If we had to endure three and a half or seven years of what God describes as the worst time ever on earth, how much of a comfort would that be? Paul says, look, the rapture is coming, be comforted. If it's post-trib, there's not a lot of comfort. What they're worried about is the wrath that's coming. Could you honestly get excited about the wrath if you knew you had to be here for all 19 judgments in Revelation? But Paul uses the rapture to encourage them. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, not us, from God that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, in other words, based on all that, encourage one another with these words, Jesus is coming. He could return at any moment. He could rescue us from this sinful world. He could literally, in an instant today, change us forever. This day, today, could be the day. It may be tomorrow. We may never meet again as a church. We don't know. He may come back between now and then. We could see Giles today. We could see the people we love who love Jesus today. That's the hope, that's the blessed hope. All of our plans for this week and for the future on earth could change in an instant. Think about it this way, it's possible that by tonight we will never have to experience a world crippled by sin. We'll never have to be in a world that's in rebellion against Jesus. We'll be surrounded by people who worship and love Jesus. We won't experience sickness again. I won't be on call. We'll never experience fear of the future again. None. And we'll never experience our flesh nature again. That's why this is the blessed hope. In an instant, we'll be changed forever. That's why Paul said to encourage one another. That's why he called it our blessed hope. Next week... We're gonna finish our focus on the rapture by talking about the last reason and what I believe is the most compelling reason that the rapture has to be pre-trib and that's because we have a wedding to attend. The Bride of Christ, church-age believers must be present for the wedding and the wedding feast with Christ and they must return with Christ. In addition, when we understand Jewish weddings, which I'll go through next week, we'll understand why pre-trib rapture is the most compelling. Jesus could return for us at any moment. That should change the way you live. Should change the way you think about tomorrow. We are to understand his return is imminent. It is the next event on the calendar. And then most importantly, we are to live like we know that. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you didn't want us to be surprised. You didn't want us to not know. There was nothing about this that you wanted hidden. God, first and before we even think about when the rapture occurs, just thank you for the rapture. Thank you for coming to get us. Uh, Thank you for saving your bride. Thank you for saving us. Because the one thing every one of us has in common is we deserve to stand in your wrath. In and of ourselves, we deserve to... To be destroyed by your wrath. It's only through your grace and your love and your mercy that we even have a chance. And it's only because Jesus stood in that wrath for us that we have any hope at all. We don't stand in in our own deeds. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. So God, help us to live like we understand that. Help us to stop living complacent lives as believers and understand the importance of why we're here. Help us to prioritize you first. Help us to prioritize being together first. Help us to prioritize the mission that you've called us to first. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God so all these things will be added to us. So God, we thank you. We love you. We hope to see you later today. But if not, we'll come back. We ask it all in Jesus' name.